You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Mark chapter 3, uh, this morning, verses 22 to 35. If you don't have a Bible, please stick your hand up. Uh, we are more than excited to get a copy of God's Word in your hands. And this is one that I really want you to follow along with because there's going to be some things that are said today that you're going to be like, is that coming from the preacher or the Word of God? We want to make sure you know it's from the Word of God today. And so uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 35. Don't be shy. Get your Bibles open. And uh, we're just going to dive right in today. We've been walking through Mark, and Mark has been doing an expert job for us at, uh, at sculpting away all of what we don't need just to get to the reality of Jesus. Mark is like an ice sculptor. He's getting rid of all the peripherals of, of what we thought Jesus was or think he is. He's getting to the reality of Jesus. And we've been learning a lot, have we not, through the book of Mark already. We've been learning a lot about who Jesus is, mostly, mostly up to this point, uh, learning a lot by what he has done, by observing him and watching his actions. Well, today the text takes a shift and today as we study Mark we get kind of beyond what he did for a few moments and we're going to look at what he said and what he taught and uh, don't just take this as a, a lesson as in like you know you got to learn a lesson today but as we look at Jesus teachings now we understand Jesus teachings we understand a lot more about the character of Jesus from what he taught correct we understand a lot more of his heart as we understand what he, he is, is aiming to teach us. And we understand what he wants for our lives as he teaches us. And so we want to listen up. When Jesus teaches, we want to be listeners. Already as I say the word teaching, I know what some of you are thinking. you got these different reactions to teaching. And in our day and age, what do we learn from childhood? Like, no one teaches us anything, right? We're our own people. Who, who's, who's, who's who to tell me what to do? And I know already there's probably, oh, we're going to learn what Jesus taught. Like, there's something to be taught. There's something to be taught. And so I just want you to evaluate quickly before we get into the teaching, just where you come this morning as far as your heart's openness to teaching. A lot of people come to church and their hearts are really open to Christ teaching them. Some people come to teaching even from Jesus. The, they, they look at Jesus teaching like maybe their mother-in-law's advice. Well, that's nice. Thanks for your opinion. Maybe I'll get to it one day, and we'll see. It depends whether I like it or not. As some people approach Jesus' teaching. Others approach Jesus' teaching like a teenager approaches his parents' teaching. Ugh, what do you want from me? What now? Do I have to? Maybe that's your heart this morning. Others come to Jesus' teaching like a, a police officer. Listen to Jesus like listen to a police officer. Absolutely, yes, sir, 100%. Like, like I know the repercussions of this, so I'll do whatever you say. Meanwhile, in my heart, I don't really care, but like, oh, whatever, uh-huh, uh-huh. Whereas others come to Jesus' teaching like, like see him for what he really is. He's our, our, our God, our Savior, our mentor, our teacher, our friend. And we come and we see Jesus. We say, Jesus, I see you for who you are. I know that you love me. I understand that you have what's best for me. And so I'm going to listen to your teaching like a disciple listens to a rabbi. I'm going to sit at your feet and I'm just going to soak it all up. Heart this morning, God's heart this morning, is that we come and see Jesus as, as a, a, a heavenly Father who simply loves us. That's why He teaches us. Sometimes He encourages us, sometimes He exhorts us, but in all things, it's for our good. So if your heart's not there yet, even say a little prayer right now God, give me a teachable spirit today. 
And we're going to dive right in. This is a, a deep passage. Jesus doesn't start with simple pass, passages of teaching. He starts with a deep one here in Mark. And so I'm going to read it. Then we're just going to try and understand it. And uh, here's what it says in Mark chapter 3, starting at verse uh, 22. You can see the little uh, subtitle here. It says, Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Already you're like, uh-oh, this is going to be a doozy. It is. That's why we teach verse by verse so we don't miss this good stuff. Here's what it says. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying this, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If the kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Clearly what he's saying is, it's clearly I'm not of Satan. Verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying this, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. These are the same people that just called him crazy. Remember a few chapters ago, a few verses ago? And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said this, here are my mother and here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. I already know I have your attention. Because sometimes God's word does that, doesn't it? As we understand this text, I've kind of tried to sub, kind of categorize this all and give us a little uh, direction to go. And so we're just going to go off with that last sentence here. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Here's the ultimate desire that God has for our hearts. He wants us to do his will. He wants us to seek him. He wants us more than anything to do his will. And so this passage really shows, out, shows for us the will of God for our lives. We always ask, what's the will of God? What's the will of God? The most common question a pastor gets is like, I'm wondering what the will of God is for my life. Let me tell you, God's word answers that right here in this text. This is the will of God. And here's the first thing God wants us to see and know in this text. What's God's will for our lives? He first wants this. He wants us to see Jesus in all of his power. He wants us to see Jesus in all of his power. Verse 22, we see clearly Jesus' life. Jesus was one of those guys that was always being stalked. He was like the paparazzi were always by him. They were always taking pictures of him and always shoving the microphones in his face, trying to catch him up with something he says that they could put on the news. TMZ existed apparently back in Jesus' day. This time it's the scribes coming after him and the scribes were the smarty pants religious people who were well versed in the Old Testament and they had superior knowledge of the law. These guys had such great knowledge of the law, they were the ones who'd uh, sign the, the legal documents and the marriage contracts and the divorce certificates and the loans and the inheritances and the mortgages, the sale of land, and every village had at least one. And so these guys who were like the kind of the upper tier here, they're upper tier in the religious system, they got together and they traveled, get this, about 100 miles. That wasn't like an hour and a half car ride back then. 100 miles just to get to the place where they could maybe call out Jesus again and put an end to his ministry. And you see them here. What's the, what's the angle they're going for this time? They're going to say this. They're going to say, it's actually not the power of God you're seeing. It's the power of 
Oh my goodness, this is intense. See how the intensity is getting greater in their attacks against Jesus? This is intense. Basically, what they're saying is, is that Jesus is only casting out demons because he was, in fact, possessed by one and maybe even one himself. What? To what lengths to destroy Jesus Christ? Think of, think of this. The accusation they've come up with so far, he's a lawbreaker, right? He's a liar. He clearly claimed to be the son of God. That's not true. He's a lunatic. Even his parents thought that. His family thought that. This one is the ultimate. It's like he's laying with the enemy, Scribes are thinking this, if we can paint Jesus as Satan, then for sure his ministry is done. And so they accuse him of being possessed by Beelzebul. Who's Beelzebul? He's the, one of the lower Canaanite deities. He's actually the Lord of the flies. He's the God of, of, of filth and decaying flesh of dead animals and flies. Like I don't know who gets the dubious distinction of being the Lord of that. But apparently Beelzebul does. And he's possessed by him and, and by... The prince of demons, so Beelzebul, B-U-L is the first one. Beelzebul, B-E-L is the next one here, the prince of demons. That's actually the highest of the gods, uh, the, basically Satan himself, the ruler or lord over the demonic realm. Regardless of this, they're claiming that all Jesus' miracles here are of Satan. He's an imposter of the enemy's camp. They're pulling at straws. Side note here, they're trying to pass off Jesus' miracles as of Satan. Get this, though, as strong as Satan is, he's stronger than we are, but he's not as strong as God is. Get, get this, Satan can't do miracles. He's not that strong. He's the father of lies, so he's good at tricking us. He's the master of illusion, so he's good at like, making things seem real that aren't real. Just like you get David Copperfield in a room to give you all of his strategies, and you find out it's not, really that, it's not really that amazing. It's just like some clever illusion, right? That, that's Satan, so... They're even attributing to Satan more power than he really has. The real issue here is that they're trying to rule out the power of God and attribute it to Satan. So look what Jesus does. He steps right into it and he answers them with a few parables. I love how Jesus doesn't back down from anything. He's like, oh yeah, you want to go there? You want to go there? You want to go there? Here we go. He calls them to himself. And he said this to him in parables. Remember stories. These are two little quick stories. He's like, really? You think that I'm of Satan? Well, here's how that cannot be the reality. Here's how come that cannot be true. Number one, Satan is for Satan. He's not going to divide himself. Are you kidding me? He's against me. He's not against himself. Look at this. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Satan's, what he's saying is like, Satan's not going to win this battle by like turning on his own. Just like any family in inner turmoil, never really, that family's going to fall apart, ultimately, right? Any, any church in, in controversy, is, is in battle with itself, is never going to win the real battle. Any community that's battling against each other is not going to win any other battles because they're too consumed with, with pilfering each other. Any country that's involved in civil war is not even possible to, uh, to defend against an attack from the outside. Why would someone attack the outside of that country? Like, they're already warring on the inside. Can you imagine if someone attacked America in the middle of the civil war? They would have been done. Point here Jesus is making is like, that's foolish. Satan would never do that. and He's never going to win this battle if he did that. So clear that up. It's clear, clear that Satan is alive and active. Here's all the people coming to me for, for healing, demon possession healing and, and, and deliverance. So clearly he's not defeating himself. He's trying to win this battle. 
You can put that one to rest. Next illustration, he says, and besides for that, Jesus conquers Satan. Satan is for Satan, so that's not true, but also, let's get this, I conquer Satan. He's a strongman illustration. And he called him to himself. He said, how can Satan cast out Satan? It gets, gets on there in and, and, and verse 26. And if Satan has risen up against himself and divided, he cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. Like, this is going to be the end. Verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. So Satan's pretty strong. We get that, but he's not the strongest of the men. When I think strong man, I think back to my childhood. There was always Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's just a strong man I think of. I looked him up. He's like 70-some-odd. He's still way stronger than any of us in this room, just for the record. But if you're going to pilfer Arnold Schwarzenegger's house, here's what I say to you. Good luck with that. First, you've got to break in. Then you somehow have to incapacitate him and tie him up and render him useless for a few seconds while you pilfer his things. Go ahead, try. I'd love to see it. It's not going to happen. You need to be stronger than the strong man. Here's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, he's saying using this illustration, he's saying, but this is what I've been doing when I've been casting out demons. This is what I've been doing when I've been doing all these miracles against Satan. I actually broke into his house. I actually subdued him for the time being. I'm actually pilfering his possessions. I'm taking from him what he longs for. What are his possessions that Jesus is taking? What does Satan control? He controls the demonic realm, right? And demons. Jesus is like, out of here, demons, gone. What's in, demon, what's in Satan's possession is those who are demon-possessed or those who are enslaved to sin. Jesus is delivering all these things. What's in demon's possession is, is sin and sickness and death. And Jesus is delivering from all these things. He's like, don't you see that I am the strongest man that is breaking into the strong man's house? And ultimately, the cross, here's what Jesus did. He, he rendered Satan impotent forever. Yes, he has some ability to move still in this time and space, but when Jesus comes back, it's going to be fully and finally complete. It's already complete at the cross, but there's going to be a day he comes back and, and, and Satan's going to be defeated forever. Until then, it's just like a mop-up job is all Jesus is doing. Just a clean-up job. It's interesting, isn't it? The, Jesus goes right into showing his power over Satan. What does this have to do with God's will? I think this is where God's will starts for us. It's believing in the power of God. Here's what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. They were trying to dismiss everything about the power of God. You know where, you know where, where doing God's will and following God's will and knowing God's will starts? It's just simply believing in the power of God. You want to please God? Believe in the power of God. I think even in the Christian church today, here's what we do. We do what the scribes have been doing. We, we maximize Satan's potential. Do the will of God. You avoid, you avoid maximizing Satan's potential. He may be strong, but let me tell you, brothers and sisters, he's not that, he's not that tough. He may be strong, but he's not that tough. He's like the bully in the schoolyard who has all the talk and all the talk and all the talk. He's intimidating. He powers over you because he seems to be bigger than you. As soon as you stand up to him, what does he do? He backs away. His bark is greater than his bite. Avoid maximizing Satan's potential, but also do this if you want to follow the will of the Lord. Avoid minimizing Jesus' power. 
Avoid minimizing Jesus' power. I'm not sure why we do this because we see the, so many examples in the word of God. We've, we've walked with people in so many different ways in life to see the power of God come alive. But yet somehow in our minds, don't we minimize the power of God? Or is it just me, your pastor, that maybe falls into that trap? Well, he's so gentle and he's so meek and we think he's the wimpy kid in the schoolyard. And Satan's a big tough guy who runs the universe. And here's the reality. Jesus is gentle and he is meek and he is loving, but he is no pushover. Of all the power in the universe, who holds it? Jesus Christ. Stack up all the nations against him and you know who's going to win that battle? Jesus is going to win every time, hands down, no contest. God wants us to not just know that, to believe that. Here's the reality, brothers and sisters. I believe so often, here's how Satan wins. He has us cowering in his presence and we're fearing in the corner and we think we're defeated in everything because Satan's so strong. He's so strong, he's so strong, I'm so defeated. I can't get past this sin and this battle with anxiety, I just can't move it and, and I'm trying to make headway and I just can't seem to go and, and we end up cowering at Satan in my combat with others in the war within ourselves, we give Satan far too much power. Ever found yourself there? Impossible? Can't do it? Even God can't bail me out of this one? But instead of cowering at the devil... Here's what we ought to be doing. The posture's not bad because we're already on our knees. We ought to turn that and, and bow before the king and, 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 and revere fear, but revere God. Instead of fearing Satan, we need to fear God in the rightful man manner of, of reverence and awe and respect for God and his power and his mercy upon us as believers. The truth is, the truth is, the more we fall in reverence and awe of God and truly fear God, the more we understand that he does have the power to give us victory over our sin. Satan becomes smaller, God becomes bigger. He can help us overcome our obstacles. He can solve our deepest struggles and even give us the power to live for him and believe. Here's the bottom line. What Jesus governs, Satan cannot grasp. In every sense of the word, in every, in every realm, what Jesus governs, Satan cannot grasp. What Satan squeezes, Jesus has the power to save. Because he has a rule and authority and dominion. Such a simple concept. But do you believe that today? Give me more about the will of God. This is where the will of God starts. Just seeing the saving power of Jesus Christ and acknowledging that Jesus is the king, not just of your life, but over all of creation. Jesus is the king. Who's the king? Who's the king? Jesus is the king. Brothers and sisters, I encourage us, let's all put Jesus in our little boxes, in our nice little neat, tidy boxes, and, and relegate him to our limited views of what we think he can and can't do. He has the power over Satan, and his power should never be attributed to Satan, ever. Satan and Jesus have nothing in common. They're polar opposites. Satan might be the prince of this earth, but Jesus is the king and ruler of all the universe. For all of eternity. 
It's different kingdoms. It's different playing fields. How do you view Jesus today? Jesus is teaching us this, that we will once again get him on the throne, that we'll once again be living in reverence and awe of him and, and see him for who he truly is. He's the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Awesome God. Puts our lives in perspective. Puts your struggles in perspective. Puts everything in perspective. Number one is to simply declare, I believe in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Number two is a little more, bit of a warning for us as we want to know God's will for our lives. Here it is. Not just see Jesus in all of his power, but steer clear of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Steer clear of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I know this is probably when I read this, this is the one you wanted to get to quickly because you want to understand what this means, and theologians have been debating this for years, so I'm going to do my best to unpack this for you this morning, trusting that God's going to use this in all of our lives, but look what it says here in verse 28. Basically, Jesus is saying, like, I, Satan's not against Satan. Like, I, he's against me, and he's not going to divide himself, and, and I'm the one who's actually showing you that I am stronger by actually casting out all these demons and plundering his goods and rescuing people back to himself. Then he says this, truly... I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men, and whoever blasph- whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying this, he has an unclean spirit. Here's what he's saying. Truly, this is simply in Hebrew, it's amen or uh, amen. Sproul points out that usually you say amen at the end of a sentence. This time Jesus is saying at the beginning of a sentence, saying truly, like true this, truth bomb coming. Here it is. All sins will be forgiven except for one. Read it. I know this is messing with some of your Sunday school theology that you've learned along the way. But I thought God forgave me of all my sins and I've always been taught yesterday, today, forever, all my sins and and yeah, it's affirmative. First John 1, 9, right? He, if, you're faith, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all what? All unrighteousness. So that is true. Every calculated or unassuming lie, every angry outburst, every evil motive, every lustful look, every malicious gossip or proud moments of arrogance, or proud judgment, or rebellious gesture, yes, they will be forgiven, but it says here, but one. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never, see this, never has forgiveness. So what is that? What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I read some commentaries this week, and and touching all the things that people think the unforgivable sin is today, and some people think it's murder. Yet we know Moses murdered and he was forgiven, right? Some people think it was adultery, and yet King David clearly fell in that area, and yet he was forgiven. Some people think it was suicide. I've heard this, well, the unforgivable sin is suicide. Remember we talked through Samson this past summer? and What was Samson's last prayer? God, take my life, and he killed himself, basically, right? And he made it to the Hall of Fame of faith somehow. It's actually none of those things. It's this, it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. 
Think of that. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Sounds serious, doesn't it? It is. Sounds like a terrible illness. It's deadly. Two phrases right here. They need to think about. To blaspheme is one who speaks a word against or to blaspheme the act or offense of speaking sacrilegiously about God or sacred things, profane talk. Abusive speech is the strongest form of personal mockery, maliciously false statements to injure the reputation of another, namely here the Holy Spirit. Speaking a word against God and his Son and the Holy Spirit, it's one thing for you to speak blasphemy or like speak negatively against me. It's not blasphemy, it's only blasphemy against God, but speak negatively against me. People do it all the time. They injure reputations, they come after us and we want to get, a, get, get ahead and that, that's bad enough, but think of this, they're blaspheming and, and injuring the reputation of the Holy Spirit. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there, but this is taking it to a whole new level. This is intentionally trying to rip down Glorious Father, majestic Son, wonderful Spirit. Takes a special sort of person to get there. Jesus is warning us that you get there and there's not going to be any forgiveness left over for you. So he's threatening us now? Some people think warnings are threats. They're not. He's warning us don't go there. This is going to drive through construction sites, right? And all this construction, there's big potholes, there's bridges out, and there's all these flag bearers and all the pylons, and you'd be best to what? Listen to the flag bearers and drive where the pylons go, and don't go around the barriers that say bridge out. Why? Because they're warnings to protect us and keep us safe. This is what Jesus is giving us, a warning to protect us and keep us safe. Already you might be thinking along like me, uh-oh, what if I've done that? In fact, I think I may have done that. Taking God's name in vain. Oh my. For whose sake? We've all been in these places, I know you have as well as I have, where there's been those angry moments of outburst at God. And God, you can't answer my prayer. You aren't as powerful as you say you are. Who do you think you are doing this to me? And they start that way, but they always end with some things that we regret coming off of our lips. And I know you're not more special than I am, so we've all been there. But yet it says here that even blasphemies they utter are forgiven. See that? All sins will be forgiven. It's true, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. That'd be us. And even the blasphemes that we utter, and you're looking at this going, are you kidding me? Jesus even forgives me for those things? What amazing grace. Grace is more amazing than I ever thought, amen? Even in my temper tantrum moments and my foolish pity party outbursts, Jesus even forgives us for those things. Not that we take them lightly. Even here today, and you're like, I've been doing that this week. It's a good time now just to stop and ask for forgiveness, knowing that Jesus will forgive us of all of our sins, even our blasphemies. That's how gracious your God is. But against the Holy Spirit, he never has forgiveness. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. 
All the other things, Jesus responds to us like the thief on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The people who are hurting him and yet blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a category all in its own. And here's what some of the theologians that we appreciate say about this. Attributing, here's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. It's attributing to Satan the work of the Savior. It's attributing to Satan the work of a Savior. Think of this, at every point in Jesus' ministry, the Spirit was actively at work in his birth, in his baptism, in his temptation, in his ministry, in his miracles, in his death, and his resurrection. At no time was Jesus not under the Spirit's full control, as John MacArthur says, as he walked in perfect obedience to his Father. And therefore, he goes on to say, to see Jesus and deny the power of the Holy Spirit and instead attribute his life to Satan is the unpardonable sin. R.C. Sproul says this, Jesus is saying in this text here, you can blaspheme me and be forgiven, but when you question the work of the Spirit, you're coming perilously close to the unforgivable sin. You're right at the line. You're looking down into the abyss of hell. One more step, and there may be no hope for you. And, and Jesus was warning them to be very careful to not mock or insult the Holy Spirit. Tribute to Satan, the work of the Savior. Ultimately, as you study this, it goes down to this. It's, it's the gut-wrenching hostility and defiance towards God and that God is finally going to say to you at one point, you've rejected me far enough, you've insulted me uh, to the point where your heart is so hard to me that I'm going to let you be and do what you want to be and do. You've rejected the saving power of me through the Holy Spirit's work. It's really a lasting, willful unbelief. This idea that I've seen a glimpse of the light and I hate the light and I'm going to run to the darkness. I'm going to engulf myself in darkness and I'm going to love being there. That's truly the unforgivable sin in that, not that God can't forgive you, but you're not even open to the forgiveness of God at all. Not that Jesus isn't willing to forgive you, but you're not willing to be forgiven and to respond to the nudge of repentance and the pull to forgiveness that are mediated by God's Spirit. And so the gavel of judgment falls on you. And it's the eternal judgment because once that gavel falls, there is no turning back. It's the one who hammers the door of salvation so closed that it can't be pried back open. So it's not actually Jesus doing this to anybody. It's a sinful, prideful human heart that does this to themselves. Crazy. Here's the good news. If you're a believer today, this is not talking about you. Amen? If you're a believer today, whew, you're safe. If you know that you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and you know that you've repented of your sins and you felt the indwelling reality of the Holy Spirit, like, praise the Lord, he saved you from the unpardonable sin. And not only do you now guard against going anywhere near that, that's part of what we do as believers, right? We guard against going there, but we know that, that ultimately Jesus is guarding over your soul to protect you from never going there. Even when your human inclination maybe wants to go there on those weak moments, Jesus is gonna pull you back. He's gonna guard your soul forever. Perseverance of the saints, he's gonna make sure that you get to glory of no merit of your own, but you're, he's gonna pull you and push you and whatever it takes. He's gonna get you there. It's not a concern for those of us who are believers. 
because of Jesus. Praise Jesus. But what about those that we know and love that maybe have committed the unpardonable sin? Here's the thing. You also can't, make, you can't be the judge of that. You don't know that. And so you might hear things come off people's lips, but you don't know the condition of their heart. And so what do we do as believers who, who maybe, oh, I think they've committed the unpardonable sin. Do we write them off? No way. We pray hard and we pray fervently and earnestly until I take our last breath. We pray, oh God, would you have mercy upon this person? Would they come to know you as Lord and Savior? Would you soften that hard heart? Would you have grace to spare them from themselves, please God? And you pray that until you can't pray it anymore. But what if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? You've rejected and rejected and rejected and maybe you find yourself falling in one of these categories. Let me tell you this, if you even care about that right now, now's a good time to turn to Jesus. If, you're, if you don't care about that, you need to ask God to help you care about what he cares about, help you care about these things. But if, if you care about this, this is probably a good sign that there's still hope for you. If you're wrestling in your seat, like, I don't want this to happen to me. I don't want to be cast away from Jesus forever. I don't want to commit the unpardonable sin. Then awesome, that means that Jesus is still alive and working you. And you can turn to Jim today and ask for forgiveness and say, Jesus, today I want to put my life in your hands. Today I want to ask for forgiveness for all the things I've said and done, knowing that he will forgive you today. If you're not worried about it, please be worried that you're not worried. And please ask God to make you care about these things because your life is on the line. And God wants to draw you to himself. He wants your heart to be open to him. He, he wants to accept you. He, he wants to call your name today and say, enough of running, enough of hiding. Today's the day you come to me. Uh, this is another moment of grace for you. Today's the day you come to me that I might welcome you in. You can be part of my family for now and forever. This is why we don't skip text because when was the last time you heard a sermon on this? But it's here. And it's necessary and it's needed for the believer. Just they thank you, God, for amazing grace. Because I know if I was left to myself, I'd be blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Horrible to say, horrible to admit, but I would. You would too. Thanks, God, for grace. God, give grace to those, those that I love. Please, God, give grace. Maybe it's you today, God. Give me grace right now in this moment. Help my heart not get any harder. Soften it right here, right now. You can do that, God. You have more power over Satan. And then all of us join forces and do this. Last thing, go strong after the will of God. Know that Jesus has the power. Let's be aware of the unforgivable, unpardonable sin. And let's do this together. Let's go strong after the will of God. Look what this next little passage says. It's really short and really simple, but yet it's, it's profound. It has great implications for us. Jesus' mothers and brothers, they come around and they call him out. Who knows why? Maybe they're going to maybe confront him because they think he's crazy. We don't know. Maybe they're just going to want some quiet time with him and think he needs a rest. We're not sure. But Jesus responds with this. When they say, your mothers and your brothers are outside seeking you, he says this. Well, who are they? Who are my mothers and brothers? He looked around at those and said this. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. In other words, Jesus is obliterating all these bloodline things that we think somehow because I'm in, in the bloodline that I'm, I'm going to be saved because my parents were saved and their faith has impacted my faith and just because I'm born in the right family, I'm saved. No, it's not about that at all. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. It's about doing the will of God. That's what truly makes you alive in Christ is the indwelling work of God at salvation, repentance and faith that then spills out into hearts that want to love and serve and do the will of the Father. When we get saved, we 
receive the most precious gift of all, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit moves in and he makes us brand new. He, he, he gives us new life. We're born again, as the Bible said. We're regenerated into a new birth and part of being regenerated into a new family. Now we have uh, people closer than family. For those of you who have, have struggles in your family or, or don't have the perfect families as the rest of us, we have a family that's much deeper than the rest, than our human families. Not only is it blood, the, oh, my blood, oh, it's my blood. It's not my blood, it's the Holy Spirit that courses through our veins and draws us together. And causes us to want to together do the will of God. This is the family of God. Not just gathering for church once in a while. Reading your Bible when you need help. Putting the worship music on when things are bleak in your house. It's being a part of the family of God and striving to do the will of God together. And this is what God has called us to, 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 to be about. And so what's the will of God? I get, you know, so many Christians that get stuck here in this place of like, well, what's the will of God? Well, what's the will of God? Tell me, Pastor, what's the will of God for my life? So many of us think the will of God is this tightrope, right? We're like Walenda over Niagara Falls. Oh my goodness, look how deep it is on either side. If I, one to the left or one to the right, it's all over. God, do this will of God. I'm so stressful, so anxious. Did you go to see that a few years ago? We weren't gonna go and you're just kind of mesmerized, like, this guy's crazy. I think I have stress. That's stressful. Many people walk through their Christian lives like that, man. I just gotta, I just gotta, shh, gotta focus, gotta concentrate. Is, is that really the God of the Bible? So overbearing and so domineering and so, don't take a step left, and if you take a step right, it's all over. Is that the God of the Bible who, who oversees all of our missteps and all of our prone, pronings to wander and all of our, is that the God of the Bible? Not at all. The will of God is much broader than that, and yet it's pretty specific in, in, in a way. Let me explain it to you this way. Here's the will of God. It's, God has come to give us what? Limit our lives or give us life abundantly? Give us life abundantly. So in other words, God's opened up a whole new playground for us to play in. My kids just love experiencing new playgrounds, and the new playgrounds are awesome no matter what's there because it's new. When we get saved, God brings us to a new playground, and he's like, here it is, and, and, and have fun. Here's a new life, have fun. And yet, on the playground, there's some things that I just don't, stay within the parameters of the playground. So I tell my kids to go to the playground, just, just stay in the playground, that's all I ask, so I don't have to chase you. He likes chasing kids, right? And as you play, just be careful of one thing, the monkey bars, Nick, are a little too big for you yet, but I want the monkey bars. Stay off the monkey bars, you're gonna break your arm, then we have to go to the hospital, it's gonna waste the rest of our day, and you're gonna be in pain, and I'm gonna be in pain, so let's stay off the monkey bars. What else can I go on? Whatever you want. Well, can I go on the slide, Dad? I said, whatever you want. Well, can I go on the swing? Whatever you want. Can I go on the monkey bars? I already said no. But enjoy. So God's given us parameters to live our lives around. He's given us law, the law, like his righteous law, even in the New Testament, the righteous law to guide our lives and guard us from falling off monkey bars and getting outside of the parameters of the playground of where we can actually thrive in life. But he basically says, like, Love me and serve me and do your best to live out my commands, all the New Testament commands, and enjoy your life. It's like when we take our kids, we go to the U.S., we, we, have, we have some of our favorite restaurants, and, they, you know, kids, where do you want to eat today? What are our options? And they're like, well, you can choose Chipotle, Chipotle you can choose Chick-fil-A, you can choose Red Robin, whatever you want. What do you want, Dad? I'm like, whatever you want is going to make me pretty happy. What do you want? I can't decide. That's why I gave you three options. Pick one. 
They're all good. We get all stressed about the will of God, but I think God has made it a lot simpler for us than we can even begin to understand. Here's the will of God in a nutshell. He's given us a lot of freedom in life. What if I do this or that? I don't think it's about that. I think it's about these things, the will of God. Here's what we're supposed to pursue together. This is what makes God, this is what makes God happy. This is what Jesus is teaching us. I, I want you just to do my will. So we ask, what is God's will? It revolves around his, his father. Jesus' father revolves around him. It revolves around his spirit, his word, and his ways. First thing we do to, to, to fulfill the will of God, we have to know God to fulfill the will of God. Contrary to the scribes and Pharisees who resisted and rejected and blasphemed the Holy Spirit, genuine disciples start here. John 6, 40. This is the will of my Father. Get this? This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. What's the will of God? That you know him. That you love him. That you're born again in him. John 3, 3. Nicodemus, what must a man do to be born again? By the word and the spirit of God, just, just know God. That's God's will. That's where it starts. Forget about all the decisions you have to make about your jobs and your careers and your family. Just simply this, start here, know God. Do you know God today? That's the first giant step into doing his will. Are you born again today? I mean, like really born again. You know that you're, you see the world differently. You react differently than you used to. God's giving you new desires and new hopes and new dreams. Like there's, there's something going on in you that you quite can't explain apart from one thing. It's the power of God alive in me through the Holy Spirit. Know God. Not just knowing God, though, it's loving God. Get this. Here's going after God's will. It's loving God. The first commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and being. To make God first priority in our lives. To put him number one on our speed dials. To, uh, to make sure he gets first of our, of our best day. Loving God is what God's will is for your life. More than anything else. In fact, Jesus even told his disciples uh, his, his, in his teachings. He said, you know, you, who's going who's gonna to do my will? Those, don't, it's not about loving your mom and dad and your brothers and sisters. It's about loving Jesus first. That's the most important not your pastimes, not your leisure times. That's what we mostly love most, isn't it? I work so I can play. Can't wait till the weekend. Can't wait to get out of church today so we can get on with our day. I love Jesus. I love God more than all the comforts and the pleasures of life. How does that play out? Here's some points under that point. Commune with him. Commune with him through the word of God, through prayer, through worship. Jesus isn't just our savior. He's our friend and our faithful king. This is God's will for you to, to rejoice. Sorry, John 8, 31. If you continue in my word, then you're truly my disciples. To be in the word of God, that's God's will for you. Every single day of your life, you don't have to ask, I wonder if it's God's will for me today to get into the word of God. It is God's will for you today because he wants to speak with you today. He wants to commune with you today. He wants to hear your voice today. He wants you to hear his voice today. How does that happen? Not through going out and seeing a bird fly across the sky. Through the word of God. Here's another part of God's will for you. Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Because this is, it says right in the text, this is God's will for you. Constantly in prayer. Constantly seeking the face of God in the little things, in the mundane things, the things that we don't think matter to God. Seeking the face of the Lord. This is God's will for you. 
It says in John 4, 24, today, this day, God desires worshipers in spirit and truth. He wants us to worship him. He's saying it today in the good times. Many of those. In the hard times. Plenty of those. In all times. Worship God. More than anything, you know what God wants from you every single day of your life? Not first and foremost, obey all the commands. Those come from this next, this first thing. Just communing with God. Like Saturdays at my house. Priority over everything else. Even the chores that have to be done. I want to spend time with family. I want to love them. I want them to love me. I want to interact with them. I want to get to know them more. I want them to cherish their dad. I want to cherish my kids. That's God and you. That is the will of God for your life. Let's stop overcomplicating it. It's simple. Commune with him. Adopt his heart. Second commandment is this. Matthew twenty two thirty eight. Love your, you guys know it, neighbor. One of you knows it. As? This is God's will for you. What about the decision you have to make this week? Before the decision you have to make this week, love your neighbor as yourself. Love the unlovable on your street. Love the people that maybe you wouldn't hang out with any other time, but they're sitting next to you in church and they need love like anyone else. Make time for people. Don't be all about yourself that you never have time for people. Run throughout your week and you get home and you spend time with your family and no one else ever has any play in your family's life or your life. Love people with the love of God. This is Jesus' will for you. A heart beats for, that beats for Jesus has times for others and beats for others. How about this one? Learn his ways. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more you want to know his ways, the more you live his ways. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you what? Love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 1, 1 John 2, 4. If you say I've come to know him and don't keep your, his commandments, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. Evidence of true converts is that we become more like Jesus. We, live, we love to live in his ways. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of, of communing with Jesus, of loving Jesus, the fruit of that is he grows his life in us. Love and peace and joy and hope and long-suffering gentleness, self-control, faithfulness, kindness. All these that belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires and so out with sin, in with the character of Jesus and righteousness. This is how you do the will of God. Here's another way you pursue his mission. We talked about this a lot. Mark 16, 15, we preach to all the world. It's the message of a, and the mandate of a disciple. We preach to all the world. Let me ask you this. Remember I challenged you guys, who's your one? Have you been praying for that person? A few weeks ago, I said, if all of us could come to know, see one person we know come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, are, are, you, are you praying for that person? Or is that just like one sermon and by Monday, Tuesday, you're done? Are you still looking for opportunities or do you need to be reminded every single week that you know, if you commune with the Lord, he reminds you because you have a heart that beats like his heart. And you see the loss around you, not as struggles and problems to your life, but as people who need the Savior. Doing the will of God is on mission for Jesus. And finally this, doing the will of God is submitting to his spirit. It's submitting to his spirit, not blaspheming his spirit, but submitting to his spirit. Romans 12, 1. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices for Jesus Christ. God, my will is done with. Your will be done. Here I am. Whatever you want, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, I'm willing. I'm submitted. 
This is the will of God. You do these things, quite honestly, brothers and sisters, this is where the scriptures go, and all those other decisions, God's going to lead you, he's going to guide you, but those aren't the most important things in your life. You can even make wrong decisions and still be doing this, and you are good with God. This is our goal. This is our desire. This is what we aim for. God's will, not mine. Here's what Henry Varley said to close and leave you with this. He said this. Henry Varley was a British revivalist in 1873. He said this to D.L. Moody. The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. The world is yet to see what God can do f- with a man fully concentri- consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. It's God's will. See his power. Understand the fullness of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And simply aim to do his will. That's the life that God honors and God is pleased with. And may be true of all of us. Let me pray. God, thank you for ordaining this text for this morning. I just pray this, God, apply it as you see fit in deep and profound ways to every single person in this auditorium. I pray that something that has been said today will draw our attention to Jesus that will cause us to get onto our knees and bow before you, O God and King, our God and King, and to live our lives knowing how awesome you are how intent you are for us to love you and to follow you and just desiring more than anything else to do your will. We know, O Father, that our wills take us a lot of different directions, but only your will is right and good and true. May we be eager, Lord. May we be eager today to say, here I am, Jesus. Take me and use me for your kingdom. Amen.